Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso and this show is meant to help you make creativity the filter for your life, redefine your relationship with fear by taking it out of the driver's seat, step more fully into the essence of who you are, and claim your right to have a dream and take up space. And all of those things are good and well, but if you're burned out, it's kind of hard to achieve any of them. And that's why I'm really excited to have on Anne Helen Peterson. She's an academic, a journalist, and an author best known for her work as a former senior culture writer and Western correspondent at BuzzFeed. Her book, Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation, and her most recent gig as a writer at Substack. On top of that, she's been featured in publications such as Forbes, The New York Times, Business Insider, Wall Street Journal, NPR, and many more. As I mentioned, Anne wrote a book on millennial burnout and is a bit of an expert on it. So I wanted to have Anne on the show because honestly, I'm pretty burnt out, and I have been for a while. And I know most or many creatives and just humans in general are really burnt out right now. Reading her book was a revelation of just how much I've been living hand to mouth and how out of whack my priorities have been. Building the awareness of what burnout looks like has helped me to start to make small changes to rejuvenate myself and get back in touch with the sweetness and simple joys of life so that I actually have a foundation to create from rather than just like piecemealing my life together and making something out of that. And it's my hope that this interview can be an inciting incident for you to do the same in your life if you're feeling similarly and feeling burnt out. From this conversation, you'll learn what burnout is and how to know if you have it, how to form a practice to deal with and lessen burnout, why millennials suffer burnout more than other generations, what our boomer parents and history in general has to do with it, how the pandemic is affecting burnout, ways out of workaholism, how to heal from creative heartbreak, and why Anne believes that sometimes doing what you really like can provide more happiness than doing what you love. <gasps> Gasp. Now here she is, the great Anne Helen Peterson. Anne, thank you so much for being on this show. Thank you for writing this book. It both made me feel less alone and it really broke my brain. And so I feel like you and I have so much to talk about because just for your reference, I gave a speech at my high school called Do What You Love, Love What You Do. <laughs> I know, oh, I, but this is good. Oh, I no. uh, got two degrees in four years. I came out to LA and like have been concurrently like pursuing like three or four different careers while working three or four different jobs. and always feeling like if I just kept working hard, good things will happen, but feeling like I'm failing in every area because none of the things that I thought were supposed to happen are necessarily happening. And this podcast is all right. about pursuing a creative life. So I just feel like there's literally so much to break down. And thank you for opening my brain up and causing it some severe cognitive dissonance. <laughs> 
can I can I ask just because I find that it's actually really helpful yeah. even at the beginning to know. So what what year were you born? 1989. Okay, so you are like a prime millennial. That's how I. Th there are old millennials, uh -huh. which is what I am, and then there are young millennials who you know like born like 1995, and then you are a prime. PM, happy to represent. <laughs> so okay, can we just start at the beginning? What caused you to want to go toward this topic? Like what was the personal pain point that incited this topic to be so present in your life, which is burnout for millennials? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I burnt out. I had been really, really resistant to naming it that, you know, when I talk about this in the book, I thought that burnout was like something that happened to war correspondents and doctors. You like really hit a wall and then you like have to go, you have to stop doing whatever you're doing in order to recover and rejoin society. Like I really thought it was more akin to, you know, shell shock and PTSD and these uh, things that we associate with post-traumatic stress. Um, although I do think there are similarities between burnout and post-traumatic stress. But the thing is, is that what I finally realized is that the experience of my everyday life was just dealing with burnout. Like there was no other experience than dealing with burnout in my later, basically my postgraduate school life. And it had become so normalized and so normalized amongst my peers as well that it didn't seem weird or different, atypical. But I needed to find some sort of vocabulary, some sort of contextualization for why I was feeling the way that I did and still do oftentimes, you know, that's the thing is that like, I don't ever want to communicate that like somehow I cured my burnout. It's like an everyday, yeah. you know, I think of it like similar to yoga. Like, you know, you have a practice, like I have a practice <laughs> of dealing with my burnout. That's what it is. Right. And I think that you're abundantly clear about that in the book. And I really respect that as somebody. And I think maybe this is just a symptom of the culture we were raised in and the messaging we got, but like who always feels like we need to be giving takeaway, 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 right. especially in media. It's like, what's the headline? Right. And I just love that you're like, listen, I don't really have an answer for you. I'm just trying to give you language so that you can diagnose what's been going on with you all these years. And then maybe we can start to all together, like fight for a societal renaissance that could change this, but it's not going to happen overnight. You're not going to like turn off a light switch in yourself and suddenly be healed. Yeah. I thought that was really refreshing. Let's just go over what is burnout. Cause there are things about it that I was really surprised about, such as one of the symptoms is like not being able to submit, submit your medical claim. I've literally been trying since December <laughs> to submit a medical claim. I failed twice and I was like, I just give up. There's too many other complicated things going on. And actually once I read that, I finally was able to right. do it. Right. Because you saw what it was. You're like, oh, the reason yeah. I can't do this is because it's a burnout behavior. And then you could yeah. do it. I thought right? I was like, an asshole. I actually, this happened to me after I wrote the article that went viral that then turned into the book. Like I was able to really see my avoidance strategies for what they were. So I think that burnout manifests really differently for everyone. I think that for a lot of people, the symptoms really resemble depression or intertwined with other forms of depression. Things like being really tired all the time, not having a lot of motivation. The one that I really felt was like that feeling of a flattening, that like there's no highs and no lows, like everything is just another thing on the to-do list. And that includes everything from vacations to like crappy things that you have to do on your to-do list. Like it's just one damn thing after another. I think that 
the big one for me as well was what I called Aaron paralysis, which is, you know, you talking about how you couldn't submit your medical claims. Some of it is the humdrum every day of life with things like getting your knives sharpened, right? And I think some of it is that we are so concentrated on work, like work has become such, has taken on such a primary position within our lives that oftentimes it's hard to justify taking any time away from it to do those errands. Some of it though, too, is that the structures to complete everyday life are so labyrinthian, like submitting medical claims, that we run out of energy while we're doing it. And you know, part of that is that the medical system has made it difficult on purpose because they would rather that we pay, right? Like there's no, right. there's no reason that they they, they want us to forget about things, you know, like rebates, like the rebates for your contacts, right? Like the reason it's so, oh, yeah, forget the reason it. it's so complicated <laughs> is so that you will forget to do it so that like it disincentivizes you doing it or even just returns, right? Like I think that it is probably built into most retail organizations business plan that a certain amount of people will order things online. And, you know, even if it doesn't fit because it's such an ordeal to go to the post office and return it that they're not going to do it right like that are not going to they're not going to take that extra step and they're just going to keep that thing that they ordered so there's all sorts of things that i think i i think of them more as like burnout behaviors right so like one for me and i had this earlier in the pandemic is i downloaded like a candy crush style game and instead yeah. of doing the things that I want to do, which include like reading fiction, I love reading fiction, or even like watching a new TV show or having a good conversation, whatever, I was like, all I want to do is play this game. It wasn't even that hard or interesting. <laughs> like it wasn't that satisfying, but it was a real symptom of me like not having the capacity to do anything else besides work and play this dumb game. Yeah, it was just really liberating to read all the different examples and to realize that's what's going yeah. on, you know? And I think it really heightened for me when I started this podcast, which I love, I love doing it, but it was like taking on an extra mm -hmm. job. And all of a sudden, like something that was supposed to go from being so much fun and like the light of my life and my baby I felt like there was no joy left in my life anymore. Like I did go on a vacation to the Bahamas and I felt like I had to be on my phone yep. the whole time. And it was like, like you said, everything flatlined. You'd go into great detail in the book about how this happened to millennials in particular. Of course, we're not the only generation that deals with it, but we're particularly prone to it. And you went through like the different ways that our parents or maybe the culture that we were a part of, or even ourselves like primed ourselves basically to be burned out. Can we talk a little bit about like the different types? You said like resume builders, like you might have a parent that was a resume right. builder or that kind of right. thing. Yeah. I mean, the connection, when I think about it, like everything to do with burnout has to do with precarity. And what I mean by that is that all of these behaviors that we develop have to do with instability, with not having a safety net, with uh, not knowing, you know, what our next month is going to look like in any capacity. And so, because that's kind of like the condition of living under capitalism right now, obviously more than millennials are experiencing it. But when I look back and I think about contemporary burnout, so like burnout in the, in the 20th century, it really first starts with our boomer parents because they were the first generation 
after there was like this 20, 20 year period of economic stability following World War II, that's sometimes called like the golden era of American capitalism. And it was just long enough that the people who were raised in it thought that it would last forever, right? It was just long enough to feel permanent. And then when that stopped happening, right? And this was importantly after a lot of families had risen post-World War II to the middle class, there was this feeling that you needed to maintain what your parents, even your working class parents had maintained, had, had found for themselves in terms of a middle class lifestyle. And that was incredibly stressful. There's this incredible book called Fear of Falling by Barbara Ehrenreich that was published in the 90s, early 90s. But it's all about basically what happened with boomers in the middle class and that, and that anxiety that came out of that fear of falling. And what became really clear to me as I was reading that and several other books about boomers during this time is that as they were adopting these behaviors to try to combat their own you know, pre-internet burnout, they were raising us, right? So we were internalizing a lot of these strategies as we were growing up. And they were also trying to instill kind of things that would prevent burnout or prevent or sustain stability in <laughs> us, right? As we we're growing up, because like they're like, oh, well, the thing that will give them stability is if they go to a good college, right? That is, you know, they don't want it. I mean, some parents want it for the prestige and for, you know, other things. But a lot of parents, they just want their kids to find stability in some capacity that maybe they didn't have in their lives. And then depending on the parent, that desire for stability gets mapped onto the kid in so many different ways that, you know, I think we can start to develop these, these work ethics or these ideas about, you know, what everything in our life has to be, namely a line on a resume. You know, like we can't have any hobbies. They all need to be things that can somehow go towards a greater goal. And so that's, I, I, that's the best way of describing, I think, the stew in which we as millennials grew up in. Yeah. Wow. It's a very hearty stew. So what, what, <laughs> what are your memories of growing up in that? So I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit in a very, it was very upper middle-class town, very much a college geared town. We all went to the public school, but the public school was great because the taxes were high right, there. Right. And so my parents did not push me actually in the slightest. I pushed myself. Right. I think I internalized the, the messaging of the town and the school system so much that I was just like raring to go. Like when I was five, I came home and was like, there's talent show auditions. I'm putting together a group. We're going out <laughs> for this. And my mom was like, okay. But they literally never pushed me to do anything. It was always this like internalized pressure right. that if I was working hard, I was a good person. And if I wasn't working hard, I was a bad person. Right. Do you, but do you think that you maybe learned or was that modeled for you by your parents? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And also my dad is first generation Italian. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of, there was subconscious messaging going on, totally. not as much explicit, like they would be happy with whatever I did, but they would also brag about me when I was doing these things. Right. So I thought like, oh, okay, this is how I earn love. This is how I earn love. Totally. You know? So it was just, yeah, I loved how you had all the different ways. Cause you really do go through so many different archetypes of this issue and how it can manifest. 
Oh, okay. This was an interesting thing. So I was reading the book and you give all these different examples of burnout and how it, it works, like how it, you know, the seed is planted and then how it starts to manifest as we grow and are in the workplace. But an interesting thing was happening while I was reading it. So I was both feeling like, oh my gosh, this has been happening to me and I haven't even been aware of it. And I've like kind of like been a victim or like an innocent bystander of myself in the system. But also I felt guilty that I wasn't as burned out as some of the people that you were bringing up. <laughs> like, d- did you, have you ever had that experience? You, Is this something that people share? You mean like, you're like, oh, if I was just working harder, then I'd be more burned out. Like, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, I could actually work harder. I'm not working hard enough. Instead of like feeling really good that maybe you had like accomplished some sort of burnout management strategy in your life, you're yeah. like, oh, clearly I need to be working harder. Well, and yeah. that, I mean, I think that is a really great manifestation of a mantra that I mentioned in the book and that my friends and I developed in grad school as a joke, but like a joke that was very, very true, which is everything bad is good and everything good is bad. And what I mean Mm. by that is that when you're doing things that make you feel bad and tired and exhausted and, uh, you know, that aren't necessarily, that aren't fulfilling, that are hard, right? So like working all the time, like reading theory all the time, always, always, always uh, devoting yourself to work that feels good because you're doing the thing that you feel like you should be doing, right? Right. And anything that otherwise would feel good resting, hanging out with friends, actually doing hobbies that are restorative, taking whole days, weeks off of work, that feels bad because you're not doing the thing that you think you should be doing, right? So everything becomes shadowed with a sort of shame that you should be doing better, more. There's always capacity for more. And that means that it's really, really difficult to actually turn off in any Mm -hmm. capacity. Like when you went on your vacation, you're like, I need to have my phone on all the time, right? Yeah. Or I like like last year after I finished the book, I treated myself to go, (laughs) went to Fiji. And in all of the places that we stayed, which were like, not necessarily that fancy, just like, you know, on islands in Fiji, there are these signs up. This is, you know, Fiji is in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And there are signs up that apologize that the internet is slow. Because apparently people who had come there had been very angry that they couldn't like do a Skype call for work from their Fiji vacation. (laughs) Right? (gasps) So that I think underlines like we work has overflowed into all of these different corners of our life. And once that happened, it makes it very difficult to actually feel good about relaxing because there's always potential to be doing more work always. So when you had this burnout realization and you started to realize the lies that had been fed to you, how did you start to sit in the discomfort of free time? Oh, <laughs> oh, it's so hard. You know, one thing is that because I am an older millennial, so I was born in 1981, which depending on whose definition you look at, millennials start at 1980 or 1981. I grew up with a lot of free board time. And even when I was in college and early after college years, there still was a lot of just like time I would spend writing letters, right? 
or when I studied abroad in France in 2002, I just walked around. Con- I was so lonely. I like really like sat in my loneliness. So I can go back to those places. Like I can remember what they felt like. And I think sometimes it's a little easier for me than than others to to rediscover that sort of blank space of boredom and nothingness. Reading Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing, which is just a revelation of a book that also reintroduced me to a lot of that thinking. I need to check that out. The book is called The Art of Doing Nothing. It's, it's called How to Do Nothing. How to Do Nothing. And as okay. a creative, I think that you would especially like it because there's like a, just a ton of stuff on, you know, she's an art historian by training. So there's just so much on like how artists think about this stuff differently. And, and she's not like a, she's not a Luddite in any way. Like yeah. she is not saying, get rid of your phone. Like she, one of the things she likes to do is, and I do this as well now, is she goes on walks or like goes to the park and then has her phone because it has an ID app for like different plants and that sort of thing. And what it does is it teaches her if she can learn the names of the plants, then she can be more present with the plants because you're like, oh, look at that plant. I know what that plant is. I'm thinking about that plant. Does that make sense? Like Totally. That's really interesting. So I do remember reading that part of your book. And one thing I've noticed since the pandemic is I love trees. Yeah. I love trees. I like to, I mean, I'm a freak. I like to say hi to them. (laughs) (laughs) I liked spotting all the different kinds. I don't know what their names are, but what a great example. I should start to learn the names of the trees and I can greet them by name. Exactly. You, they will become, they will become parts of your life, right? That, that root you and ground you. In a way that I think a lot of us didn't have time for or space for mentally pre-pandemic. Like the pandemic has opened up some of these spaces for us to recover some sort of grounding. I think that's a lot harder for parents right now. But for people who aren't parents, there is a little bit more space in our lives. Yes. I also am not a parent. I would like to be a parent. Your your chapter about parenthood and then subsequent chapter, which was the final chapter, destroyed me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's going to have to be a therapy session about this book. It's very good though. I'm really, really happy. Like I needed to be disrupted in this way because this has kind of been the theme of this whole year. The pandemic like fucked my shit up like everybody else because it's like a near-death experience. Right. And I realized the things that I've been prioritizing are only a part of my dream. I really want my career dream, but I also really want to have a beautiful relationship and I want to have a child. And like, I've just been like assuming those things will fall into place, right. but nothing's promised. Right. And yeah, I'm, I'm curious because you do talk about in your foreword how the pandemic has made this all the more clear. Yeah. And so how do you think the pandemic is affecting burnout, will affect burnout? What, how do you surmise this, this situation as it is now and will be in the future? So earlier we were talking about how work can overflow into all these different corners of our lives. And I think that's only become worse during the pandemic for people who are working from home, right? So for people who are still having to go into the workplace and are essential workers in some capacity, they're having a much more traditional form of burnout where like every day they're like, is some random person going to come into my grocery store and like sneeze on me and I'm going to get this disease through no fault of my own, right? So that sort of precarity that increases burnout in a very just like lived everyday experience. And then people who are now remote are dealing with uh, the lack of boundaries in a way that they might not have before. So like, I think a lot of people 
before the pandemic, if they worked in offices, still oftentimes came home and dealt with emails, you know, like sometimes would go into the office on a weekend. But there still was a delineation between office space and non-office space. And when that's gone, if you have not had any practice with it, it is so easy to just work like 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And I think that I've had a lot of practice with trying to create boundaries and I'm still working on it. So basically everyone is trying to deal with this all at once while also trying to grapple with if they have kids, you know, their kids trying to figure out what the boundaries are for school and not school and bugging their parents and not bugging their parents. If you're in a small apartment and your partner's also working from home, like how do you create any sort of boundaries between the two of you? You're just dealing with each other all the time. Um, I think that some people who are extroverted, I am not, but people who are extroverted are really struggling with, you know, for them, interacting with people is a nourishing thing. It's a thing that actually gives them energy. And so they don't have that in their lives anymore. Like Slack does not necessarily reproduce that feeling. Oh, no, it does not. <laughs> I hate Slack. And I was glad you kind of railed against it in the book. Because oh, yeah. I think, I think Slack is just like, okay, so they made text, a group text message, a thing online, and then sold it as this different thing that we can never <laughs> escape. And we have to respond to even more immediately than email. It's bullshit. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it is, it feels like, it feels like surveillance because even if your manager doesn't say like, I'm monitoring how much you are on Slack, you still feel like you have to perform presence on Slack in some capacity. It's just a waste right. of space, right? It's a waste of perform. Like you are, you are not working. You are like trying to show evidence that you are working by not working by being on Slack. Right. Especially because there's like, at least at my work, there's random channels where people are just sending funny things. Yes. And I'm like, I don't have time for this. <laughs> but if you don't participate in it, it makes you seem like someone who's like, I don't know, like not a team Above player. It. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, so I will, I'll send the memes. I'll do a hashtag. I'll, you know, I'll join. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not a fan. If you want to text me, just text me. That's how I feel about yeah. it. You talked about surveilling, and this was a big part of the book. I mean, one good thing I think that is probably going to end or at least change drastically is the open office space, right? Because yeah. this was a part of the book. I have always dreaded being in a situation like that because of exactly what you said. I'm actually not even as focused on my work as I should be because I'm thinking about the other people who could come talk to me, who are looking at me, right. who are overseeing things. How does this traditional office setting lend itself to burnout? So. It's again, that idea that at any moment, someone could try to figure out how much work you're doing, right? That people are always judging. How long do you take to go to the bathroom? How long do you go for your lunch? What is on your screen right now when I just walk by casually? Like, are you always looking at Twitter? Are you always on Facebook? Or are you the person who's always in like the document or the, or the, the project or whatever it is that you're working on? And the thing about you know, surveillance like this is it's, it matters less how much people are actually doing it. What matters more is that you as a worker internalize the idea that someone is always surveilling. So like the theoretical word for that is the panopticon. You internalize that surveillance and you enact it on yourself. And it's just no way to live, right? Like just always thinking about, does this look enough like work? 
<laughs> it distracts from the work. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just curious because you did so. I mean, I know you, do you have your doctorates. Is yeah, that, I have okay. a PhD. Yeah, you're amazing. <laughs> so I'm so curious what kind of research went into writing this book because it was very well written. I mean, you basically like took a lot of the tenets of a classical textbook but made it fun to read. Good. So how did you approach that and how, how much research went to it? How did you research? Yeah. I'm curious. So, you know, because of my training as an academic, so my, my PhD is in media studies but I, I'm also like a media historian. So I always am trying to figure out, okay, what were the antecedents? Like what brought us here? So a lot of what I ended up reading were histories of you know, the last hundred years of work, of leisure, that sort of thing. But then also academic theorists who are trying to figure out like, where did leisure go? Where, where did this idea go from? I read a lot of sociology. I read a lot of like books from the 1980s that were designed for workaholics to read. So it was all about like the plague of workaholism, which was so masculinized. And it was so much like people, like dads who just kept going into the office on Sundays, you know, so, so to try to think about, okay, what was this worry that people were responding to in the 1980s, like as our parents were rearing us? Yeah. And then I also just interviewed a whole lot of people. I sent out Google forms like broadly through different networks that I had and ended up reading responses and, and doing follow-up interviews with over 3,000 people. So I did not personally talk to 3,000 people. I got responses from that many people. But it, it allowed me to spread the breadth of experience past my like white bourgeois experience yeah. or my old millennial experience. You did such a great job with that. <laughs> and you actually really taught me something too, because there were so many times when you would introduce someone and you'd say they identify as, and it would be, oh, this person is Middle Eastern and white. They identify as Middle Eastern. Yeah. I never thought of putting it that way. So thank you for educating me. But something else you just talked about was workaholism. You know, a lot of company cultures really promote that. You go over different ones in the book. Uh, certainly my experience has been in Hollywood having company cultures that both uh, promote that and also that are anti-millennial. Right. Like, I have a very specific instance of something in my early career where I was being bullied for being a millennial and working 18 hours a day. <laughs> and I'm like... What's the connect here? So I, so millennials don't work hard. They're lazy. They don't do anything right. And also I'm doing all those things. So like, right. I'm confused. Right. Well, oh my gosh, there's so much to unpack here. So, <laughs> but that, that is not a rare experience for sure. Right. So our, our contemporary sources of workaholism, the way I think of it is coming from like three different main sources. The first is consultants, and I go over this at length in the book because it might seem kind of weird to just mention, like, how did consultants make us work all the time? But there's this long history of how they modeled this certain type of work, and that's what they also looked for in companies. And if you didn't do that sort of work, then it was easy to slough off those employees. So it, it really instilled a culture of overwork. Same thing with Wall Street and Wall Street investment makers in particular. And then the third big one, which is more contemporary, is uh, Silicon Valley. And I was really interested to learn that like that idea of cultivating, you know, the 20 hour workday started like in the 70s. 
60s and 70s with the early iterations of what we now think of as Silicon Valley, that they were seeking engineers and thinkers who really had a style of work that was not nine to five, that really depended on staying at the office and programming for just like long swaths of time. And that's when they started providing things like breakfast so that you would stay, you'd like pull an all nighter and then get yeah. breakfast and work some more. The small perks, man. Right. Or the one that was so revelatory for me was there's this great book written by a woman who was a graduate student at Princeton and then paused her graduate program to become a finance banker, basically, to like embed herself as a finance banker. And the reason she could get hired, even though she had no finance experience, was because she was at Princeton, which because the finance banks are like Ivy Leagues only. So if you're from Princeton, I guess we'll try it. And she embeds herself in this culture. This is in the mid 2000s and does all of these incredible interviews. But one thing that she noticed is that all of these workers, you know, they would stay at the office until 7 p.m. Because if you stayed till 7 p.m., you got free takeout from anywhere you wanted. Right. And then if you stayed two hours later, then you got a free black car home. And so if you're never home, you can't buy groceries. So why would you go home and make dinner? So you got to stay until 7 p.m. so that you can get the free dinner. And then why not stay an extra two hours so that you don't have to take the subway home? Right. So it encourages. And then there's also a culture on Wall Street of presentism. Like you need to be there when your boss is there. So you go home at nine at the earliest and then you have to be back in the office early because of the stock exchange and because your bosses. So it creates a culture of really of at least like at least 12 hours, if not 18 hour days. Yeah, I think that that's very present in a lot of different or it has been at least in a lot of different areas of commerce. Yeah. But getting back to the idea of millennials being lazy, because you write about this and I was so happy to, to see you say this. I don't know lazy millennials. No. I really don't. I Everyone I know is working so hard and some of them have made it, quote unquote, but many of them, despite the fact that they're holding so many jobs and they're working so hard, they just can't seem to be able to achieve the American dream, right? Where did this false messaging about our generation come from? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So this goes back to your earlier question too, about how like you were working these 18 hour days and then right. like being called a lazy millennial, right? Or like getting yeah. made fun of for being a millennial. And I think there's two things at work. The first is that a lot of jobs that millennials do, especially knowledge work jobs, are not readily 
identifiable to older people as work, right? So if you're a social media manager, that doesn't seem like a hard job unless mm -hmm. you've ever been a social media manager and then you know it is a very hard job, right? But so things that involve simply like being on Facebook all day, like that does not signify as work to a lot of boomers. So that's part of it. That's part of where the laziness comes from. It's like, oh, you just like, you're on a video game all day or you're on social media all day. Like that is not work. Uh, and then the other thing I think is that paired with these long hours, you know, you told me that when you graduated from high school that your your speech was like, I like do what you love basically. Yeah. Right? So there's a whole chapter about this in the book, but we have internalized this idea that we should be doing work that we're passionate about and that is fulfilling. And so I think a lot of times millennials, when they're working those 18 hour days are like, this isn't fulfilling or I'm tired or like, when can I do the job that I want to do? Like the job that I'm actually passionate about. And that can be interpreted again by older generations as not wanting to pay your dues or being picky about your job or whining and complaining when really what it is, is a manifestation of that ethos that we were really reared on, which is that you must find a cool job that you're passionate about as soon as possible. And in the book, you talk about maybe don't do what you love, do what you really like. Yeah. <laughs> which I still don't think I can wrap my head around that. Like I feel so connected to it. And I, I still think if I can find a way to do it, I want to. But tell me why that principle can be very freeing. I think that for some people, the thing that they really, really love, the more that they love it, the easier it has been to exploit them. So this is especially true for like people in grad school. You know, one of the, the best examples that I had not anticipated is like zookeepers are actually like they are incredibly passionate about their work. And so it's very easy to pay zookeepers very little. Librarians, uh, pastors, there's all sorts of people who Oh, the story of the pastor broke my heart. Oh my gosh. There are so many stories of pastors with huge burnout. But when you are so wed to something, you're so invested in something, and there's so many others in a similar position, it's harder to be paid an equitable wage. And then it's also harder to, to decouple yourself from feeling like, oh, well, I'm paid so little. That must mean that the thing I love so much, the thing that I pour myself into, that it's not actually that valuable. Like, that's a hard thing, right? That like you are not, like society as a whole is not valuing that heart labor. Teachers, right? Like I think about, you know, it, it varies from state to state, but a lot of states, we show how much we actually value teachers by how much we are paying them. And they are pouring their entire selves into that job. So some people hit a wall with that and they just cannot deal with just how intertwined their identity has become with their job and how little they are valued in that job. And what they find instead is that they just want a job that is steady and that actually values them. It does not have to be the thing that they are the most passionate about. And maybe they can do that thing that they are the most passionate about on the side in some capacity, not for money, but they just want that steadiness in a job. And they don't want that almost abusive relationship in terms of how they are compensated and valued for the thing that they are doing. Yeah. And that's the thing I think a lot of people don't think about when you have a vocation, quote unquote. Yep. It can really easily turn into that because your whole identity gets wrapped up in it. Totally. And you can intellectually understand that that shouldn't be a thing. Like intellectually, I get that. 
but emotionally it's like a piece of my heart. So just try ripping it away, right. you know? Right. Well, and then that's the thing though, is at some point, you know, you are still able to, to make a living off of it. Whereas mm -hmm. there are people out there, the story of the pastor that that's included in the book, like he, he doesn't have health insurance. He's barely making ends meet. Like this was a calling this was his vocation but it's just not a reality anymore. And I think for a lot of millennials, that is true with the thing that they've chosen to do. And so they have to have this really profound moment of being like, all right, this thing I pursued all my life that I funneled everything into, that I took out so many student loans for, it's time to go away from that because I want to be valued as it. Like I want to have some sort of steadiness. I want to, I can't, I don't have any energy to keep fighting this fight but that would be so hard. Oh my gosh. I was going to say, have you had any moments like that in your own life? Oh journey? yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, so I was an academic before, like I was a professor. Yeah. I want to know how <laughs> you made this transition. So you were a professor and then you started writing at Buzzfeeds, but what was the transition? So I was a professor and I was writing basically for free on the internet. Like I was writing a blog back and blogs were cool. And then would write for this site called the hairpin and, and some other places. And uh, but I was on the job market. So I had gotten a visiting professor job, which is like a two-year gig, sometimes one-year gig that you get. And then I was on the market for a more permanent gig and I didn't get any, but I had on the side kind of subconsciously built a life raft for myself. A lot of people don't have that life raft. They instead take really low-paying, adjuncting, part-time jobs in order to somehow still keep doing what they love, which is being an academic, teaching, doing their research. And you get to a point of exhaustion with that sort of, with those low wages and not knowing what your job's going to be the next year and all that sort of, with precarity essentially. But, oh my gosh, it was, it was so traumatic when I like found that I, that I didn't get the job at the school where I was, that I'd applied for the permanent job and, and some other ones. I was just, I was sh just totally shaken and I still have like traumatic nightmares about that experience, which shows to me that my body is still processing the trauma of essentially working so hard towards a point in your life and then realizing that that path has been shut off to you. I call it creative heartbreak. Yeah. How did you yeah. recover? How are you working toward recovering from that? Mm. Well, journalism was a great way to throw myself into something else. You know, people, when I first started at BuzzFeed, they were like, how do you work all the time? And I was like, well, being an academic taught me how to work all the time. And, you know, at least in this job, there are actual days off, right? There is a weekend. And even though I oftentimes work a bit on the weekend, there isn't an expectation that you should work all of the weekend, all of the time. <laughs> so I, it's been a gradual unlearning process of some of those bad habits that I adopted while I was an academic and trying to reconcile the fact that a lot of those bad habits are what make me a quote unquote good journalist. Right? That dogged devotion to my work, that workaholism makes you a good journalist, but you can only do it for so long, right? Like it, at some point you burn out and the, the returns they, they, they're less and less. So I just continue to try to, to balance that. But remember too, that like the thing that gives me pleasure and has always given me pleasure as an academic and now as a journalist is writing. 
and connecting with people through that writing and through those ideas. So that's still there. Yeah. I talk to a lot of people about purpose. And I think one thing that I have redefined in my mind, which I'm glad about, and maybe you would approve of, is redefining your purpose, not as like a thing, you know, it's like not even being a writer, like, what is kind of your life thesis statement, like as a human. And I think when you redefine your purpose to something like that, many things can fit into your purpose. Talking to the tree can fit into your purpose. You know, having this conversation with you can fit into my purpose. Like making dinner can, you know, so I think that's really beautiful that you kind of realign that in your brain. And it's, of course, a constant whittling away, but yeah, I really appreciate that journey. And now I was kind of stalking your Instagram earlier. I saw (laughs) your, your shifting to another job. Yeah. Well, yeah. And this is actually really interesting. So I, after six years at Buzzfeed, I am shifting full-time to writing my newsletter at Substack for like, you can be a paid subscriber or an unpaid subscriber. And I'm basically becoming my own boss and cultivating yes. my own readership. Right. And in some ways it is so liberating. Like I don't have to do that role-playing on Slack anymore. Like that is incredible to not feel that pressure anymore, even though it was all self-imposed pressure. And I can set my own schedule in terms of when I want to publish things. Like I can find the designer that I want to have do the graphic that goes with the piece, all of those things. It's just so much more self-directed. And I think sometimes having that control can be liberating, but it also makes it all the easier to just work all the time. So as I'm moving forward with this, I have to try to be mindful about like, you know what? Like I should take an entire day of the week, of the work week, like from Monday to Friday and be like, that is a day that I am devoting to reading things, just like larger projects sort of things, things that I would not have had the time or space to devote myself to when I was doing the the everyday hustle at BuzzFeed. Yeah. Because you do talk a lot about that. And it was, it's so interesting that you wrote this. I'm like, she must be a little psychic that she wrote this right before this big conversation burst out during the pandemic. Because I feel like people have been talking about the gig economy nonstop. And you have this whole section of the book devoted to it. So if somebody is a part of the gig economy right now, like, what are the particular forms of burnout they should be looking for? And Mm -hmm. I mean, you just gave a great example that you have to create space for yourself. But what are the particular types of burnout that they should be looking for and what are ways out of it? You know, the example that sticks with me is with Uber, how Uber really advertises that you don't have a boss, you can set your own hours, like you have all this freedom as a so-called independent contractor because they won't treat you as a worker. And then there's this great quote from one of the many books that's been written on Uber where an Uber driver tells uh, the journalist that, Sure, you don't have a boss over your head, but you have a phone over your head that can always be telling you, you could be driving right now. Just drive another 30 minutes. You know, when you, it's not the the case anymore, but there was a a long period of time where if you were driving Uber and you tried to shut down the app, you're like, oh, I'm tired. Shut down the app. It says, are you sure you want to stop now? You know, like there are, (laughs) there, there, it's busy in your area. You could make another 20 bucks. And that's basically the the internal voice externalized that you can always be hustling more. And so the hard thing is that it's one it's one thing when you are actually using a gig economy job as a surplus income on the side, 
most people who are doing the gig economy are doing like one gig economy thing next to another gig economy thing. Like they're stringing together many different contingent jobs or they're underemployed in their, their weekly job. Like they only have 30 hours say at a retail store and they're supplementing that with as many Uber hours as they can do. And so the impulse is to be like, well, if I do another hour, then maybe that like chips away at this bell. So I think it's really, really hard to try to preserve yourself in any sort of way to try to like carve out and feel good about spaces where you're not working when there is that opportunity to always be working. And the hard thing is that like most people who are working these jobs, it's not like they're like greedy, right? They're not like, oh, I can make like so much more money if I just do this money that I don't necessarily need. They're like, no, I could make enough money to actually feel a semblance of security, maybe, right? So, I mean, to me, the solution isn't so much like how can gig economy workers deal with their personal burnout? It's much more like how can we as a, as a society figure out how to give gig workers protections that actually treats them as employees and not as you know independent contractors with no rights or protections. And besides voting, like what can we do to, to help incite this sort of societal change? Like, is there anything take the streets? Like, I mean, I do think that a lot of the, the anger that is erupting right now around social justice, around COVID, around everything, like all, a lot of it has to do, not with burnout specifically, but like with being like, this isn't working, right? Like society right now is not working and it hasn't worked for a lot of people for a really long time. And it shouldn't be some sort of revelation that just because like white bourgeois people aren't having society work for them that like, oh, now we should be pissed, right? But I do think that we have reached a tipping point in terms of it's not working for enough people that we're finally like, oh yeah, like we should do something about this. I think the most important thing is we have to think about how we can elect leaders who are going to think about decreasing precarity in our everyday lives, right? Not through a small tax cut, but through restoring the social safety net, restoring worker protections and the rights of unions, all sorts yeah, of things. That was mind blowing though. In your book, you talk about how, when we had those social safety nets, like when, when capitalism worked semi well, and you said it was, it was after the great depression, yeah. right? Because these safety nets had been put into place and like, there was some sort mm-hmm. of protection for workers. Yeah. So we need to get yeah. back. Well, and we have like the skeletons like the ghosts of those things, right? Like we still have the semblance of union protections, but then there are so many states that have passed right to work legislation that basically guts unions. Or we still have social security, but it's such a low percentage that like every millennial I know just thinks that they're going to work until they die. Yeah, it's more (laughs) of a social tip, not security. (laughs) It's pin money, as you said in the book. Right. Which is oh, great. Oh, my pin money, <laughs> my pin money for when I retire one year before I die. You know, I laughed so hard when I read that, because when I moved to Hollywood with my various jobs, I'd be like, just going to get my pin money, guys. <laughs> and I'm like, I love that you brought that back. <laughs> it is such a grandma word, but it is a good way it's to true. describe it. Yeah, it's very true. Yeah. So I, I wish I could talk to you for absolute years <laughs> because you have just a beautiful mind that is full of so much knowledge that I think could 
really helped me live a better life. But I'll just reread your book again and cry. And also thank you for writing it and deal with it in my therapy sessions. So, you know, we didn't get as in-depth to your story as I would have liked because there was so much to, to break down from the book. But one thing I really do feel is that creativity is deeply connected to our inner child. The inner yeah. child before the messaging, before the... I have to work to earn love comes into place. That pure soul that came to this earth and was just like, here I am. I'm love. I'm yep. ready. Right. And so when you think back to your little Anne, yeah. if the two of you were standing in the same room, looking at each other, whatever age you think of her, what do you think she would say to you now and why? She would be like, read more books. It's okay to reread the Babysitter's Club like seven times. Because my mom made me, I, this is actually in the, in the book, but my mom made me alternate Babysitter's Club books with like serious books. And they're both valuable. She'd be like, they're all good. All books are good. And just like keep, you know, I loved writing even when I was, even when I was that age. And like, doesn't matter what people think of you. And what would you say to her and why? Oh, well, I'd tell her that it doesn't matter what people think of you. So actually, she would not tell me that. I would tell her that. I was just so self-conscious, always thinking of what other people think about me. <laughs> uh, I would tell her that, you know, you're going to love to think about all of that boredom that you had, all of that expansive boredom. And it actually made you who you are today. Well. Anne Helen Peterson, I love who you are today. Thank you for sharing yourself and your brilliant mind and, and these really important topics with the world and with the Unleashed listeners. And I just think you're awesome. Thank you so much. I love this interview. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to my amazing guest, Anne Helen Peterson. You can get her book, Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation on Amazon or wherever good books are sold. Follow her on Twitter at Anne Helen, on Instagram at Anne Helen Peterson, and subscribe to her newsletter and read her latest writing at annhelen.substack.com. Thanks to Liz Hull for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Hull. And again, thank you. If you liked what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, follow the show on Spotify, share the show with a friend, and post about it on social media. Tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Also, tag Anne so that she can share it too. My wish for you this week is that you take a break if you need to and take care of yourself. Creativity is vitally important, but it's important for us to remember that we are who we are outside of literally everything we do. Embrace the beautiful human you are, and if you're burnt out, rest. It gives you a good foundation to actually create from. Have a great week. I love you, and I believe in you. <laughs>